0: Our guest today is a hypnotist who seeks to heal clients from karmic wounds, anxiety, and early childhood imprints. She is such a cool person, and I had a wonderful time discussing her line of work as well as the future of being a human and the many avenues we may embark upon. She is so positive, forgiving, and reflective. Here is my friend, Emily Rose. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's where I wanted to start.
1: Perfect. Tell me about
0: hypnosis.
1: It's a really interesting thing because we're in hypnosis all the time. Like we're in trance throughout the day, whether it's you're driving to work and you forgot how you got to work. Or you're watching a television show or a movie and it feels like no time has passed but, you know, you just watched The Hobbit and it killed two and a half hours of your day. For sure. So these trance states happen when our critical mind is gone. And so that can happen when we're either extremely relaxed. It can happen in, you know, before dream states. It can happen so many different ways. Um, but the purpose of... Intentional hypnosis is the process of rewiring the brain in some manner or another. Um, We can do this by regression, which is a process of going back to memories, Um, whether they be in this incarnation or people who believe in past lives, we can go into past lives. And we can rewrite or reframe a mental reconstruction in the mind. So, that can look like, um, for instance, I went through a hypnosis session and I had asked my mom, I had felt like there was some womb healing to do around my birth. And I'd asked my mom about her cortisol levels when she was pregnant with me and her cognitive ability, her stress, her depression, if she had postpartum, anything like that. And she said, no, everything was perfect. Everything Hmm. was absolutely wonderful. And I just kept getting this nagging feeling like there was something. Um, and so I went to a session with a hypnotist in Australia and, um, yeah, he guided me back and, oh, sorry, let me, let me rewind. Um, so I was speaking with my mom about it and finally she had said, well, your birth was really traumatic. So like you're pregnant, like my, I loved being pregnant. It was wonderful. And I had no postpartum. I was so excited, but your birth was, um, 42 hours. Mm -hmm. And It was extremely stressful and I wanted to do everything naturally, but um, there were certain points where like your breath was being compromised and that hit me and I was like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense because I have all of this own fear around having my own kids Mm -hmm. and things like that. So I went to hypnosis and we reframed it. And so logically, I still know my memory of like, well, it's not my memory, but the understanding of what happened. But in my mind, I've reframed it to I my mom gave birth in a birthing center, in a bath in a cloth bathtub, with rose petals everywhere and flowers. And so I've reframed it mentally in my mind to release the fear and stress of it, even though logically I know that's not what happened.
0: You were able to recall those details? Yeah. Without her telling you.
1: Yeah. And
0: she confirmed that.
1: Yes. They were not extreme details in the sense of like, I couldn't hear people's words, you know, um, but I could feel stress. I was in her womb and I could feel like I was confined. I felt like I couldn't breathe. I felt extremely anxious about coming into the world. I felt um, just so many things. And,
0: And this is before you chose to pursue this career field?
1: No, this was while I've chosen to pr- okay, uh, pursue so you, this career field.
0: You thought that you would kind of dive into your own life and see what you could find?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty obsessed with um, self-awareness Yeah, and um, recognition of how I can become a better person for myself and for others. Mm-hmm. And so I got into this work being someone who constantly is like, how can I do better? How can I be better? Um, and how can I not be so self-destructive. And um, so I found this career and I've been obsessed with it because I can do so many things. And that's just one aspect of reframing. We can also reframe and do inner child work. So a person who was bullied perhaps could go back and we could do gestalt therapy, which is a process of, um, you know, you speak to your bully and they have to listen to you. And when we're in hypnosis in the conscious mind or the, the critical mind is out of the way, We are in full, like, creative consciousness and emotion. And so that's what's really powerful. So you can step into the feet of the bully and figure out in this miraculous way of, like, you know, why did you bully me? And the bully will say in their own words, um, I'm abused at home.
0: Yeah, that's usually what it is. Right? right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so then they can reciprocate it and understand, like, oneness. And it doesn't, uh, you know, exempt them from anything they did. But it brings an understanding to know, like... Other people have trauma. Mm-hmm. And so there are different ways we can reframe things, um, whether they be emotional healing or, in my case, in that one, like actually mentally restructuring how I felt and what that uh, environment looked like.
0: So do you think it was beneficial? Are you glad you, you went that path and figured it out?
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely not a one-trick pony I mean, it is for some things, you know, you see stage hypnotists and they're like cluck like a chicken and people do it on command or um, people who are smokers can quit smoking in one session. But when you're going in for therapeutic processes like trauma or PTSD or, you know, binge eating, coping mechanisms that have been really long term ingrained, Mm -hmm. it's going to take a few sessions to really open that up. And process that. So that was my first step in really opening that up and like coming to terms with my own birth story. And then there are other things following that I'm working on.
0: Yeah, it probably helps you. It probably helps you when you're working with clients, right? Since you've been through it and you kind of know what it's like to be on the other side of it.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's really important. Um, I don't take my clients through anything that I haven't been through myself. Mm -hmm. So. Of course, knowing that everyone has different experiences but the process itself and how it leads because I wanna make sure that I know how it works. So I um, have learned from a few different mentors. I take a lot of online um, summit courses and so you can watch people teach live and they'll answer your questions and it's really wonderful. And this process allows me to then see them and say, oh, okay, I really like this process. I can do this process, but before I do it, I'm gonna purchase a session with them. Mm-hmm. So I think I've seen over 10 hypnotists this year. For yourself. For myself. Yeah. Um, lear- making sure that this is a process I'm willing to try on a client and mm-hmm. work with. And if I don't like it, I don't do it. And if I do like it, I still test it out on friends and family first before I take clients through it, because I wanna see all different aspects of how it could work out. Mm -hmm. Because every person's gonna be different um, in how they respond to things, what their body feels like, whether it be heavy or light, their coping mechanisms. I've had clients who, um, interesting enough, fall asleep, and not just like, oh, I'm tired, my body needs this rest. It is, we are two minutes in and I'm having Uh, suggesting their body to relax, focusing on the temperature against their skin and the rhythm of their breathing, and they're out like a light. And Uh then I wake them back up and they're out like a light. And I've come to find out the more clients that I have that do this, their subconscious is literally protecting them and saying, we're not working on this right now. We're gonna just go to sleep because we love this coping mechanism. It protects us it serves us. We don't want to change it. And so that's a really interesting um, avenue because I either have to figure out, is this client not ready to work, truly not ready to work on this and they need to process more or do other types of therapeutic work? Or does this client really want to work on this and we can change this coping mechanism? And so it's a fine balance of making sure that I'm always in a place of actually serving the client and not just what they think they're capable of, if that makes sense.
0: Well, yeah, because when when you go under, what, what do you call it?
1: Going into trance.
0: Going into trance. You're you're not conscious,
1: right? Oh, your conscious mind is very much there.
0: But I mean, do you know that you're doing it? Do you know that you're hypnotized? hmm Yeah?
1: Uh, depends on the person. There are people who definitely are... How would I say it? Um, I've had people explain it as though their consciousness was right here. And they're like, you know, so I have clients who are channeling. I have sessions where people channel their guides or they uh, channel their definition of a higher power. And when that comes through, it's always the same. I could hear my thoughts. I could see my consciousness um, or feel my consciousness. But... I was not in control of my words or my mannerisms. Mm. And it changes the way they move and think. And there are other people, um, a lot of my work is very interactive. However, there are a lot of hypnotists who just read a script or they have a process that they Mm. read out. And it's a process of bringing someone into trance by allowing them to focus on their body and release their judgment. And then moving them into suggestions of either um, you know, you you are no longer a smoker, or very direct, or something of confusion, um, and just reading that through. And there's no interaction. There's mm-hmm. no checking to see did their subconscious take that. And although that works, I'd say like fifty to sixty percent of the time. I think it really depends on the client and what they need. Um, there's a really interesting fact that, or a really interesting thing that people just fall asleep. <laughs>
0: It seems like that's what I would do. (laughs) They fall asleep or
1: they think they were asleep. They're like, they come out and they're like, I don't remember anything. They're like, but I wasn't sleeping. I just went somewhere and I don't know where I went. And Mm -hmm. so there's different ways that people experience it. um, But more often than not, people still hear that thinking. People Mm -hmm. still hear that, oh, I have an input on that. And then they're like, oh, but that's not my turn, if that makes sense.
0: So they can hear it, but they have no control over it. It's almost like some internal thing is taking the wheel for
1: a minute. If they want to, yes. Because if they don't want to, it's not going to work. You know, uh, we can bring smoking again because it's such a big one for people. Um, Their partner wants them to quit smoking. They Mm -hmm. do not want to quit smoking. Hypnosis is not going to work. Yeah. Right. It only works if we want it to work. So it's, it's interesting that we can have these thoughts and some people will say, I see those thoughts and I will observe them whereas some people will take their thoughts and, be, and try to control them. And so that does make the process a little bit more difficult to encourage that change when they still want control over that coping mechanism or their mind more.
0: Do you know, I think her name was Sybil? The, they made a movie about it with Sally Field in the 70s. She had split personality Mm -hmm. She had, like, seven or eight different personalities, Mm -hmm. and that was her coping mechanism. She Mm -hmm. would, like, just completely become a different person. Anytime that trauma was triggered, uh, that's, like, the greatest length that your brain would go to to protect you from something is, like, becoming a different person. Yeah. It's pretty wild that uh, there's something inside you that wants to protect you. And, I mean in that extreme case, do whatever it takes. And so you're saying you have to penetrate that wall sometimes, yeah?
1: Yeah, because we definitely, and I have to explain this sometimes to clients who who know about DID. Um, what is DID? What you just explained. It okay. used to be called borderline personality disorder.
0: They don't call it that anymore? Mm-mm.
1: Uh, borderline personality disorder is something else now, I okay. believe. Um, yeah, because I
0: want to talk to somebody about that, and I haven't made it happen
1: yet. Yeah, I'm not. This isn't my profession, so <laughs> feel free to talk to a real licensed therapist or medical professional. But um, the DSM-5 brought in a dis- disassociative identity disorder because when they switch identities, they disassociate from their, their host, like mm-hmm. the person that we are, right? Um, and I do parts integration which we all have parts, but not everyone has DID because there's a big difference. DID is when you're literally, those parts are coming out and like creating a whole person with an age, a gender, a personality, handwriting. You know, you've seen people with different, it's insane mm-hmm. the what can be held in one body mm-hmm. um, that does not seem to correlate to a host. Um, whereas parts integration is more so You know, you have a dad hat, you have a work hat, you have a party hat, like you have all these parts of you, you have an inner child part, and they all work together for your protection and good. Mm -hmm. And so when we speak to these parts, it's like we're the captain of our ship. And we have all of these little personalities inside of us that are working all the time to protect us. One of the most common things I see is people who procrastinate. And every time I've done parts integration, it is, in my experience, a protection. It is someone, it is a part saying, you're really busy and we want you to relax. You think too much. You're too exhausted. And so that procrastination is them actually protecting them to give them rest, mm-hmm. even though that part doesn't recognize it's harmful and that it's hurting them.
0: Well, it probably has to do with the. Um the thought of failure, mm-hmm. failure or rejection, right? Mm-hmm. You're scared if you do that thing, right. you're going to suck at it and then it'll be worse than it is right now, so just won't do it.
1: Yeah, and that's completely always tied in to yeah. the process. Um, yeah. Wow.
0: So wh- why did you choose somebody from Australia?
1: I had read his book uh-huh. um, called Quantum Consciousness. And I... I'm obsessed with um, the understanding of the human mind and everything it's capable of, whether it's how we hold ha- trauma, whether it's um, you know transcend- transcendent states of consciousness. It, it all just fascinates me. And so I in my personal education, um, I didn't feel like it was good enough. my, my baseline hypnosis education. And so I decided to learn myself. So I looked up the top five schools in the US and found that they all had reading curriculums, which I did not have. So I went through and I purchased all the books that they oh, read wow. in their reading curriculums. And then I read through them and his was one of them. And it's a concept, he does, a, he does several different things, but um, it's a process of allowing people to, when their souls feel like, They don't belong here. You know, humans that are constantly just feeling like this is so hard. Being a human is so difficult. I don't understand. Everything feels so foreign to me. And they can go into a guided session where he will help them understand why they feel this way. And more often than not, it's because their last incarnation was on a different planet in a different time. And so this feels so foreign and he helps mend that Mm -hmm. and like allow... Those things to come together, so that we can understand our place in the world. He also does life between lives, he does past life regressions, he does um, he does a, a plethora of things. That book was specifically on the understanding of allowing the mind to do spiritual work, basically. Um, but since then, he's come out with several other processes that he's been building since um, I don't know, I think about thirty or forty years now.
0: Hmm. So you flew to Australia to meet with them? Oh, no. No?
1: I did it virtual. Okay. Yeah, no, this was a couple months ago, and (laughs) Australia (laughs) is like on lockdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: The fascinating thing to me is where we're at right now with all, all of this info you've just given me and everything that we know and how many different issues each person can have and all the trauma that you can internalize and, and um, just kind of remove yourself from reality. And so this is this is a field of study that hasn't been around for very long. It makes me wonder, like, what did they think 100 years ago, 500 years ago? Mm-hmm. Like, there must have been so many crazy people just so <laughs> upset all the time, and no one could tell you they couldn't figure out a way to help you. You're just like, sorry.
1: Yeah. Um it, there's history, I've, I've tried to research, but we both know the internet is so saturated that it takes a lot of effort to mm-hmm. research this. But there's a lot of history of hypnosis in Egypt and... Huh. Um, what am I trying to do? Uh, Rome. And it's all around very ceremonial mm-hmm. spiritual processes. And then it kind of gets washed away. And then we see some stuff in the fifties and sixties come up and it's very like old school clinical hypnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, you know, your body is relaxing and you no longer have anxiety. And then there's a metaphor about how there's so many clouds in the mind and that's all of your ruminating thoughts and we're gonna allow the clouds to move away. And just like that, your thoughts have and worries are gone and dissipate, mm-hmm. um, and it's just super simple. And now we're at a point where people are—you know—there has been studies of people who have cured their Alzheimer's and cure, yeah, uh, and and uh, seizures. I watched a live, um, or not live; it was recorded, but it's uh, Charles Tebbets. He is one of the founding fathers of a, a type of parts integration. And he did a session, um, I want to say it was in the 60s or 70s. It was pretty old. And he was just chatting with this guy and, you know, put him into trance. And he said, um, I'd like to speak to the part that is like obstinate or, you know, used a keyword. And that part came out and he said, what's your name? And he said, asshole. My name's asshole. And he said, okay, asshole, what do you do? And he said, um, I drink a lot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and he's like, well, why do you drink a lot? And he was like, well, like my, my dad was mean to me. And so he, he starts kind of unfolding this and he's like, okay, well, you listen while I speak to another part. And he says, yeah. He says, all right. I want to speak to a part that's protecting you. And this part came out and I can't remember the name, but they said, what do you do? And they say, well, anytime they, he drinks, I buzz him. I'm like, what do you mean you buzz him? They're like, the seizures? And he's like, yeah, those seizures are because of me. I'm punishing him. So it turns out scientifically, like, yeah, the brain was having seizures and we could see this, but it was all based on an emotional core problem. Whoa. And after that, he didn't have seizures. And so it Whoa. makes you think, like, how many things are emotionally based Yeah. and how many things are truly because of the way we're wired or the way we're functioning on a scientific basis. Level, and it's just fascinating. And this first time I saw that, I was like, there's I have so many questions.
0: <laughs> so what is the ultimate goal then? You want to cure people? You want to help people?
1: I want to help people. I can't yeah. say cure because of my profession and because of legality. <laughs> I can't like I can say therapeutic, but I can't say I'm a therapist.
0: Yeah,
1: right. So, um, but yeah, I just want to help people. I really like working. You had spoke to it earlier that when we go through something ourselves, we have a lot more passion for that. Yeah. So I really love working with people who suffer from extreme anxiety, um, early childhood imprints, and mother-daughter wounding and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, it, yeah. it's I, I love working with anything that will help people, but I don't care for the clinical stuff. So like I don't do smoking cessation. I don't do fear of flying. I don't do – I like working on consciousness as a whole mm-hmm. um, and helping people come into the person that they are without all of their conditioning that's gotten in the way and is holding them back from whatever life they want to live for themselves.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about it before you got here, and I think – the majority of issues have to do with communication,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and the the inability to understand somebody the you can't read anybody's mind
2: mm-hmm.
0: you you're constantly picking up social cues and body language, and I mean a lot of times when people are mean to you or, or they do something messed up it's not because. It's really directed at you. It's because something's wrong with me, and I'm taking it out on you, right? And so I was thinking about it because I read this article that said uh, there's this very prominent guy who releases info on iPhones, and he said that the iPhone won't exist in 10 years because of AR and VR. And with each iteration of technology that we go through, the The core idea is that you connect people more, right? That was the idea behind social media. Mm -hmm. And now it it fucked everything up and made things worse for everybody. But that wasn't the original intent. intent. And so really, at the end of the day, all anybody can do is communicate with each other. And that's uh, with your spouse or with your kids or your grandparents or whatever. Like you're just trying to... Be who you are and explain who you are to other people, mm-hmm. and all that stuff that gets lost in translation is what creates issues and strife. And then I was thinking about like, what, what's the end game? Like, what, is, what would be the best thing if we could read each other's minds? And I don't know if that would be good either because then you can get to see all that dark stuff that yeah. you don't want to see. But there's so much trouble with humans because we're incapable of really telling each other what we wanna say. And I think a lot of what you're trying to uncover is stuff that people can't enunciate. They can't mm-hmm. get out, right? Cause it's been buried for some reason.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So you're just like trying to liberate minds basically.
1: Yeah, and communication is such a difficult thing cause we all communicate differently. Mm-hmm. And we're taught how to communicate by the authority figures in our life, and so if they don't express themselves with words and they're throwing things, we're not going to learn how to use our words, mm-hmm. you know. Um, or some people use their words too much, <laughs> and they yeah. overshare, they overspeak because they're, you know, anxiously trying to make sure they they create a full picture, and then it's not till afterwards that they realize like oh, I could have created that with some more boundaries, mm-hmm. or like you know, and learning how people that we love communicate because our friendships and our relationships, um, whether they be family or platonic or intimate, it's all based on how well we communicate with them and how well we want to teach them to communicate mm-hmm. with us because the more that we help them learn how we communicate and vice versa, the stronger our relationship will be. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, naturally comes out of this process of working with people with anxiety and um, high stress levels and PTSD is the more they become aware of themselves and those ruminating thoughts start going away, the more and more they're able to communicate their needs, the more they are less attached to people who won't serve them and can't help them. And the more that they stand in their own and say like, oh, that's a red flag and I don't really need to follow that Mm -hmm. down that path. I can sit here and I'm going to be just fine. So
0: So would it be best to have some sort of like childhood program and then you get to people before something happens? Because it sounds like you're doing a lot of fixing the past.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is some of where my own conditioning comes in and that I'm working through. And um, a lot of that's fear. I have a lot of fear from being in an unstable home and having things always like Jekyll and Hyde kind of like, not really knowing what's gonna happen. Um, And in my teenage years that evened out, but as a young child, I never really knew what was stable. So I still have that fear and I now recognize it in little facets of life. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of those is working with people who are underage. And the reason for that is because I have a fear that if I work with kids at a young age um, and their parents say like, yes, we want them, we want to work with this, that um, they'll quickly realize like, their own faults and that's a threat to them. And therefore they would say like, they would not be happy with it. I, I have a fear of parents being in control of children. It's just like a teacher, right? They're mm. like, my kid's always perfect. And it's like, your kid's not always perfect. Every parent says that. Yeah. So I, there's this irrational worry that I could get myself into trouble or that I would be criticized by a parent Um, Whereas with an adult, I'm working with someone who has full consent to say, I don't wanna do this. I don't like this. And so I'm really into ethics um, and integrity. And I've read several practitioner books on following ethics and signs and things. And so there are areas that, because I know I'm fearful in them, I won't touch them yet until I work on that. Because I don't, when it comes to my work, I don't wanna push anything that could trigger something in myself Um, And therefore create irrational fear or something that is unnecessary. So until I work on that, that's a gray area for me.
0: No, I hear what you're saying. Because if you're working with a kid, um, if you diagnose the issue as coming from the parents, the parents are like, oh, no. Yeah. Nothing's wrong with me. (laughs) Uh, And also being a kid is such a weird time. Your brain is so delicate and you're just like figuring, you're figuring out the other sex and your friends Mm -hmm. and you're going through puberty and like trying to be cool. And there's so many factors that make that time period so difficult. And then if you're, you're trying to do like deep work on your soul, you probably, I mean, you don't even really know who you are
1: yet. Right. There's a, what is her name? Jo, Joan, Joanne. I can't remember her full name at the moment, but she uh, trademarked the process of sleep talk. It's an incredible process. Um, It's something that in my mind would be ethically easier for me to move into and feel secure in working with kids. It's one of the only areas where I feel a little less of a gray area. And her process is, um, let me think, it is below the age of seven. And our brains are in theta state more often. Like uh, up until the age of three or four, our brains are fully in creativity. Like they are, we are not thinking of um, judgment of others or mm-hmm. what have you, right? Conditioning hasn't set in yet. And so during that, you know, before the age of four, before we go to sleep at night, parents can, she came up with this process of speaking to their kids before they go to sleep and stopping bedwetting, stopping bullying, stopping sibling rivalry, and all of these incredible things just by telling a story. And she does it in a way that creates metaphors. And even though the child is thinking like, oh, we're talking about frogs on leaves, their subconscious is making all of these neuro connections and understanding. And so then they fix these minor problems. And I believe she stops at the age of seven um, due to the fact that by that age, they start to get more into their personality and their defiance. They're um, not quite in puberty yet, but they're hitting that age of like wanting to be identified as their own type of person. Whereas a child, they're a lot more, you know, loosey-goosey. And it's... It's really wonderful Um, and it actually made me think about writing children's books on hypnosis because, oh, excuse me, Um, I was reading a book to my nephew and he would not fall asleep. He was three years old at the time and he would stay up for hours just in bed and Mm -hmm. not, it was awful. And so we went there for Christmas And I read to him and I was like, this book is not doing the trick. So I just made up a story and I counted the clouds in the sky and as they counted, the sheep got sleepier and sleepier and its body got cozier and cozier. Mm -hmm. And he was out like a light. And I was like, this is needed. Mm -hmm. Parents need this. Mm -hmm. Like we, there are incredible children's books, but we need ways to help kids. Like you said, at that fundamental level, So that there is less work to do later so that we're not playing catch up, Mm -hmm. but they're integrated with all the things that they need when they're little. Mm
0: -hmm. The thing that that pops in my mind is the majority of people who have achieved anything have battled something. They've overcome some struggle. And I mean, you've talked about struggles that you have had and it has caused you to pursue to become a better person and do all these things. A part of me is like, if everything was easy, nobody would have anything to fight for. And then like everybody would just be boring mm-hmm. and wimpy. And like, you almost need something bad to happen to make you understand why it sucks so that you can try not to make it happen again. I mean, I'm not saying like parents should abuse their kids or something, but like, yeah, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And it, um, I don't have kids yet, but I have lots of—I'm fascinated by parenting and different parenting styles and what—how a child can be influenced by not only their authority figures, but if they have a completely safe, secure home, right, where they feel they can completely authentically be themselves— what comes in from school, what comes in and and how this works, or if they have a completely unsafe home, but they have a safe school environment and family friends and like how this rewires their brain. And I think to myself about how much I want to protect my future children, right? And you're a dad, so you know mm-hmm. that you want to like, limit screen time because we know that social media for children is not great. (laughs) Um, Making sure that they are allowed to be bored because with boredom comes creativity. And so that they can actually experience things and be creative and, and not just constantly be plugged into something or needing to be fixated and sensory stimulated. Um, But it also, you know, how, uh, how much do you want to protect your kids, and how much do you also recognize that if I don't let them fail, will they ever learn, or will they ever, will they, will they just have privilege of like they had such a good life and they never need to strive for anything, so then they never try to strive? Exactly,
0: because they're worried about failing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. No, that's super important. Uh, my kids were out riding bicycles in the cul-de-sac the other day, and uh, my daughter's ten, and my youngest son is seven, and she's like. I'm worried about him. He's going too far away. He, he's he's going to get lost. I'm like, he's going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. He knows where we live. He's not a mile away. He's like a half a block. He's cool. She's trying to protect him more than I am. I'm like, you got to let him fall down and skin his knee or something. Like, yeah. Yeah, you can't. Um, it's a tough mix because you want to protect him and you want him to be successful and, and figure stuff out. But you, the most important things that have happened in my life have been the awful ones. Mm-hmm. That were extremely painful, but I had to find a way through them. And it made me stronger and a better person. And, I mean, they sucked, but I don't wish they didn't happen.
1: Right. There are opportunities. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: But, I mean, I guess that's not really the same as, like, it's such a bummer when people have childhood trauma. Because you...
1: Yeah, because there's a difference between, like, doing stupid things as a teenager or a young adult, or even a grown-ass adult, and seeing, like, that was my own decision, I should have done better, versus someone else doing something to you, there's a, it's a, yeah, it's completely different. I agree with you. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you think it's become more of an issue, though, recently? Or you think, you think things have gotten better? It seems like they've gotten better.
1: I think that parenting model is changing, and so there are a lot more parents who are, um, you know, we went from what they call like the lost generation right before baby boomers mm-hmm. who would raise the boomers to just like, like, shut up, you're fun. don't cry and, yeah. like, you know, whatever. Just extremely harsh authoritative parenting to then boomers raising their millennials as like we're all getting participation awards. And like, so the complete opposite of the scale, which we know radical on both sides is not helpful. And it seems like we're finally coming into a place of, you can be an authoritative parent, but there's a difference between being authoritative and authoritarian Mm -hmm. and making sure that you, you know, when you speak to your kids, you get down on their level and you're not speaking down to them, but you're Mm -hmm. speaking to them and that you ask them to understand why are you crying? Where do you feel it in your body? Mm -hmm. You know, what is it that's making you sad? And trying to teach them emotional intelligence about themselves. And I think it's happening more and more. Um, But I also think we're battling new things like technology. Yeah. And so, even with parents who are trying to bring all of this new awareness, which I think we're really going to see, you know, 40 years from now, like several generations down, it takes time to just, I feel like, actually ingrain things in. (laughs) Um, But, we also have all, you know, kids aren't bored right now. Gen Z is so tuned in, which is wonderful because they're also extremely, like they want to be an activist for everything and they want to fix everything, <laughs> which is so cool. Like, yeah, please. Yeah. Past generations haven't done a great job. Like we'd love for you guys to, to step up. But at the same time, They're also more fixed in on social status than it seems like anyone else because we can, we went from seeing like MTV Cribs on TV and thinking, oh, this is so cool to, I can literally look inside the homes on Instagram of every famous person. Mm -hmm. And there's that jealousy and that like self-doubt and all of these natural human things that at our core, if we're not secure in ourselves, social media is just gonna lift all that crap to the surface. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's an equal balance of like there are some things that are getting worse, but there are other things that are getting really good. And I'm hoping that, you know, technology is technology, but maybe social media in a few generations people will actually see like we'll have enough time for people to younger generations to actually stop because millennials were so quick to be like, this is so easy, here, take a tablet. You're, I love this, right? Easy parenting, it's mm-hmm. great. And we didn't, it's just like you said, we got the internet, we didn't recognize the repercussions. We handed kids our phones and our tablets, not realizing we just created a monster. Mm-hmm. And so maybe Gen Z when they have kids will be the first to say, absolutely not. <laughs> and we'd have yeah, this right? wonderful, like, you know, more stability in a home for children to be authentically themselves while also feeling like, They can be bored and Mm -hmm. they can, I don't know, go touch curtains or like lick tables, like Mm -hmm. anything other than trying to play Angry Bird.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I always think that when I'm like in the grocery store and if you don't stop yourself, the natural tendency is to just pull your phone out and do something. Mm -hmm. Or like if you're in a doctor's office Mm -hmm. or even if you're like hanging out with your friend and there's like an awkward moment in the conversation, like your natural reaction is just to like, yeah. And then you don't have to like, then you just feel normal, I guess. But a lot of times I'll be like, I'll pull my phone out or something. And I'll be like, I don't even have anything I need to do. Like, yeah. why can't I just stand here and think about stuff? Because mm-hmm. I think that's really important. That's when I have my best ideas is when I'm just like
1: mm-hmm. staring
0: at something and people are like, what's wrong with that guy? <laughs> you and
1: know? you notice it, right? Because if you're at a coffee shop and you're just sitting, you recognize everyone on your phone. You sit in the doctor's office and you recognize everyone's on their phone. And it could be different. I mean, you you do this, so clearly you're probably you're you're an entrepreneur, right? You're working on your phone, like you probably have emails and things coming to you. Um, and so there there are those of us who have work, but there are also those of us who are just scrolling. Yeah, and we're just trying to go through uh, filling our time with something so we don't have to think about stress or think about or let thoughts come into our mind.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's easier to like disassociate.
0: Which I guess is good, but then, like you said, then you're looking at stuff that you don't have that you wish you did, mm-hmm. and then feeling shitty that you don't have it.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
0: a weird trap. It's a weird trap. Uh, when I, I took my kids to uh, to Seattle to go to Wild Waves, and it was my son's birthday, and he brought his friend, and they're 14, and they're both sitting in the back seat next to each other, they hadn't seen each other in months. They didn't talk. They just both stared at their phones. And then I talked to him later. I was like, hey man, what's up? Like, didn't you guys have stuff to talk about? And he's like, oh, we we're just we we're we we're playing games with each other, like playing each other the game. Oh on the my phone. gosh. And then he's like, we we're texting each other. I'm like, you're sitting right next to him, dude. What do you mean you're texting him? <laughs> and it might have been some stuff they didn't want me to hear, you mm-hmm. know. But I was just like, I'm 37. I'm not, I don't feel like that old. And that generation is so different in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and that's what makes me be like man i don't feel that old i don't feel like i'm not removed from all that stuff that's happening but it's different Mm -hmm. like they would rather they would rather play uh playstation together in different houses Mm -hmm. than like go hang out yeah and that's so foreign to me like all i wanted to do when i was that age is go hang out with my friends. And it didn't matter what we were doing, if we were like drinking or getting in trouble or whatever, like we were doing stuff physically together. And I don't think kids care about that as much anymore.
2: Mm
0: -mm. You can have like this persona that exists online Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and it's more important to like groom that avatar or whatever. It's just so different.
1: Yeah. Even have you ever heard of like the hype house or any of those big uh, social media houses? Mm -hmm. So there's this fad uh, that started, let's see, it's 2021. I'd say maybe like five years ago, six years ago, I think. Um, And there's been several, but there are these hype houses and what they, um, or, or these collective houses. And so it's a bunch of teenagers or young adults who... Get a house together, and they create content together. Hmm. And so each one has their own YouTube, TikTok, everything, and then they build up each other's stuff by doing crazy stuff. Hmm. And but it's so interesting because they have all of these incredible, incredible content. Right? One, they're being sponsored by big names, so they have a ton of money. Yeah. So they can give away cars, or <laughs> they can like, you know, egg someone's house. Uh, the entire house with, like, thousands of eggs and paid to clean it up. Like, there's no limit. It's a lot of privilege. There's, like, no limit to what they can do. Um, And it's all for the sake of content. But then there are people who who have been in those groups who have come out and actually filmed what's happening when they're not creating content. And they're all on their phones. They're, like... Going to an influencer party or, or one of these parties is the most boring thing because <laughs> we're making content. Yeah. And once that content is done, we are all on social media. We're texting each other. like we are yeah, not yeah. like you said, we're we're in the same room and we're not even interacting. We're mm-hmm. interacting virtually.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's this weird thing that even when they are interacting, it's to put more content on the internet. It's not to create relationships or to understand yeah. people or to like do something. Fun. it's to get the most views and the craziest stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just, it's such an inch, it baffles me. Um, I'm sure it it sounds like it baffles you. It does. It doesn't make any sense to me, but they're also, they were raised in technology. I remember when we got a a computer lab in the school and it was a big deal, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, like I had my space in high school. Mm -hmm. And so there was, I thought I was exposed to too much social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm like, yeah, it's really bad. You know, I didn't, I think I had a flip phone when I was 15. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was late. And now they're like eight year olds with iPhones. And I'm like, <laughs> what do you, what does this eight year old mean? They're like, we need it to protect our children. I'm like, from what? Yeah. <laughs> like, everything that you need to really protect your kids from is on the internet. There's a documentary about, um, what was it called? Uh, it's on YouTube. And it talks about, it interviews parents and kids and the kids of those parents. And they're like, what's your, what do you want to protect your kids from? And they're like, well, we don't want, when we were young, the lights came on and we came home. And like, we d- we want to protect our kids from predators outside and from being stolen. And they had, made, had these statistics. They're like, did you know that your child is more likely to uh, be sexually assaulted, bullied or anything from social media, then they already get picked up on the side of the road. And all these parents were shocked by the amount of statistics that showed that social media was so much more harmful than letting their kids stay out after dark. Mm -hmm. And it's because we're just ingrained thinking that's where the harm is. We grew up thinking like having our parents and like recognize that the streets weren't great, a great place to live all the time unless you lived in suburbia. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas now it's like, that's not so much the problem. It's everything is at their fingertips. Yeah. And...
0: It's uncontrollable too, because a a majority of the people I know that have like serious addictions Mm -hmm. are adults Mm -hmm. who should know better, but it's so addictive. They don't know how to stop. Mm -hmm. And then you justify it. Oh, it's because I use it for my job or, oh, I'm researching or I'm doing this or I'm doing that. And uh, it's kind of a curse in a lot of ways. It's super cool that you have this thing in your pocket that you can do anything with but then yeah it, it creates I, I know so many married couples mm-hmm. where that's like the main issue they're like she's fucking on her phone all the time yeah i can't take it i'm like i don't know
1: <laughs> it's a no, it's awful um i've had that in the past happen and i just was like and i would consciously think okay i recognize i'm on my phone mm-hmm. if i put my phone down Maybe they will recognize and we can like, I, I, I recognize this as a practice and I'm also addicted to my phone. So how can I fix this? And me making the decision to delete all my social media and mm-hmm. like, you know, take it in for myself did not remotely affect their want or need to remove anything. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, this isn't going to work. And I have friends who are, you know, like you said, just constantly connected. And it just feels like, you know, especially in a world of a pandemic where we haven't had normalcy of seeing our friends as much. We're getting to more normal. People are more comfortable now seeing Mm -hmm. people. But in the beginning people were like, you can't come in my house for a year. Oh yeah. You know? And so, in a world where we're not getting to see people, when I spend time with my friends, I want to be present. So my phone is either in my purse or in my jacket away. Mm-hmm. Um, I am yeah. completely here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if there's something that I know will come up, I will say, hey, at some point I'm gonna check my phone because I yeah. might have an email or what have you. But like that time is so precious. I only have a couple hours with them. Mm-hmm. I want to engage with them because the rest of the time we can talk on the phone. Yeah. But that doesn't seem to be the new normal
0: no the new normal is is zoom calls and a lot of times when i'm trying to do this people will be like oh you want to meet me in person i'm like yeah i don't want to talk to you in a computer it i i've done it and i do a lot of it for a living and it's so unnatural Mm -hmm. you don't get you don't get the social cues and also the timing is different because you got to wait like a half a second to hear the response you know Mm -hmm. so yeah there's Maybe it'll go away. Maybe we'll all live in the metaverse in the next 10 or 15 years. But right now, this is what I wanna do with you. I don't wanna talk to you in a computer, you know? So I don't know. It's like this weird um, transition that that the human race is going through, but it's so accelerated. And that's why nobody just, nobody knows, like I've said this a hundred times before, but like, I don't know what to tell my kids to do after high school. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you should go to college. I don't know what you should study. I don't know what jobs are gonna exist in five years. Yeah. It's so hard to tell.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's uh, we're finally recognizing that like the American dream was a big lie, Mm -hmm. right? And that we um, cannot just go to school, go to college, get married, buy a home, because we won't be able to afford anything. We'll be on food stamps and we'll probably get our house foreclosed on. We need, there's a lot of other steps that need to get in the way that, you know, have uh, been added since previous generations that they didn't need to do. And so it's like, do we really need college? I mean, unless you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor Mm -hmm. or someone who needs to be barred by um, a board of directors, do you really need to go to college? Can you take, um, Can you go to community college and take all the creative courses that you want without the intention of getting a degree, Mm -hmm. but just knowing that you're going to learn the tools to paint or produce or record or whatever it may be. Um, Can you do life experience and just travel? Like there's so many options and I'm with you. It's kind of like... You, and, and we don't know what's going to be the big jobs in a few years. I mean, we know tech's not going away. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be work in tech. There's always going to be work in blue-collar jobs and technician jobs and things like that. But um, there's a lot of career fields that are becoming obsolete that weren't just five years ago, mm-hmm. especially since COVID. That really accelerated what it means to work from home, what it means for people to um, use more virtual assistants and, and things that are technology-based um, and don't require like hiring a, a real human person.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I don't want to give away what company she works for, but I have this friend who works for a very large prominent company and uh, they said that she has to go back in person two days a week mm-hmm. in January and if she does that, she gets her same salary or she can stay home and continue to do work from home for a significant pay cut.
1: Really? Yes. Wow. Yeah. And she's been working from home this whole time. Yes. So the work she's been doing at the pay she's been doing, they're now saying, if you don't come into the office two days a week, we're gonna deduct. Wow. Yeah.
0: And I'm like, well, what's, why would you take that pay cut if it's only two days? And she's like, yeah, I'm gonna go in. But that seems so crazy. Mm -hmm. And it's gotta just be like a cost saving Measure, so they don't have to force you to come in. But then they're like, "Well, if you're gonna, you know, write emails in your pajamas, then we're gonna pay you a lot less money." Yeah, it's weird.
1: It's super weird. Mm-hmm. I'm with you.
0: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I don't know what's gonna happen.
1: What do you think is gonna happen with like like this platform, like podcasts and? you know, 10, 20 years? Do you think that there, because there are so many podcasts, I, I don't know the statistics on this, so feel free to correct me, but like 50-50 being, you know, all, only audio, and there's so many video podcasts, right? Mm-hmm. Or video, and then they also produce audio, so they have one of each. What do you, and and audio would be, I would assume it would seem more natural to the audience because they're not seeing a discrepancy in um, visual aesthetics around each person. But as far as video, do you think that that's something that's going to change? Do you think people are going to move into wanting to do everything over Zoom or or in a different manner? Or do you think that people are still going to be, a big majority of people are going to be making in-person content?
0: I think it's going further and further away from it. Probably just due to COVID. Um, well, I mean, not just because of COVID, but because of what we're talking about, how um, I think this whole metaverse VR situation is gonna be legit. I think it's gonna take over. You're just gonna, I I heard it explained on a different podcast I was listening to. Um, why would you want to be you? When you could be anything you wanted, you could be a tiger, you could be Kim Kardashian, you could be.
1: Who said that?
0: Uh, <laughs>
1: I can't, Do you remember the name of the person? I can't remember who it was. Oh, um,
0: but they, they framed it that way. And I was like, that's not really appealing to me. I, right, I'm cool with me. But for a younger kid who's grown up in that environment, and they've always had Uh, a new outfit they could buy in Fortnite, get a new skin, you know, for your character Mm -hmm. or you, I mean, you can upgrade anything. You just pay 20 bucks and then you get this new sword or whatever. Like you can be anything you want to be. It's
1: very appealing. It is Mm -hmm. very appealing, especially Mm -hmm. if you
0: hate yourself and you're like, oh, I don't like my hair or I'm I'm overweight or what, like you don't have to work on this.
1: Right. Which they say like some 70% of kids right now are not happy with themselves, whether it be because of their weight, whether it be because of their skin or they're like something physically aesthetic, mm-hmm. or they just have social anxiety and they think everybody hates them and they're mm-hmm. paranoid. It's a huge majority of kids. So yeah, it makes complete sense that they're all for them. That's a huge, that's a great advertising technique to for say sure. like, you don't have to be you anymore. Like, okay. yeah. Good. I hate. I hate this. This sucks.
0: <laughs> sounds awesome. It sounds great. Yeah. yeah. But then, like, what happens with with procreating and meeting somebody and falling in love with somebody and mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could still fall in love with somebody hearing their voice and like you appreciate their character. <laughs> You're like, oh, you got cool shin guards. But like,
1: we're it, human. We are. We are built yeah. to literally be attracted to certain things, right? I, know. I mean, you whether it be like uh, you know, someone's big eyes or someone who's tall or short or whatever, we are naturally attracted to something. Mm-hmm. And no matter how much we can fall in love with someone's personality, at the end of the day, we're human and we're naturally judgmental. Mm-hmm. And so if we then meet someone in person and they don't meet our aesthetic needs to what we think is visually attractive, it's not very many people who will actually follow through with that. Mm -hmm. I think there are people who absolutely fall in love with people's souls, um, but even that has its limits of what they find beautiful.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So yeah, that's a huge murky water of like, people can fall in love online, but will they stay in love when they meet each other in person? And there's a big difference between, you know, meeting someone and talking to them virtually and not actually seeing them to not only seeing them, but also watching them interact in real life. Because it's very different. I'm sure you've you've been in a room with people where you're like, this is so great. Like, we interact so well. And then you see them with someone else and you're like, oh, they treat them very differently. Mm-hmm. That was really rude. Or like, they're really mean to their waitress or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. Um, and you you gain a greater lens and perspective for that, right? And so if we're doing everything online... We're not getting the full picture of who someone is. Mm -hmm. We're getting like this best version of them because they're wearing this mask that they want people to think that Mm -hmm. they are. Which then is also just going to lead to everyone feeling rejected because then they're like, no, it it doesn't seem, it just doesn't seem sustainable.
0: It doesn't. There is, there's something that happens when you're in a room with somebody, like you said. Mm -hmm. There's pheromones, there's looks, there's the shirt they're Mm -hmm. wearing, there's the way they talk to other people. Uh, There's so many things that go into falling in love with somebody. And yeah, I don't think you can replicate that online and then see it happen in person. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, up until recently, I was on Bumble a lot and it's so weird to basically judge a person on a picture of their face. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I'll be totally honest, I'd swipe instantly Mm
2: -hmm.
0: on lots of people based on one picture. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't have anything to do with what type of person they are in real life. Like I could, that's such a shitty way to judge a person yeah. And I was, I was supposed to go on this date with this girl and it didn't work out because I got sick and I had to cancel on her. But she, the day before we were going to go out, she's like, I have to ask you, which one of the pictures is you? And I was like, what do you mean? And she goes, they all look like different people. And I'm like, it's all me. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you.
1: Uh, yeah, like Just because they're from different angles? I or guess like... I had
0: a hat on in some of them, but she thought they all looked like a different person. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. They're all me.
1: That's also such a weird thing because, you know, I don't know if you've ever met, I mean, you've done online dating, right? So you've met someone online and then in person, when you see their the fractionation of their face in different places, mm-hmm. you notice things that you didn't notice from a picture online because those pictures are meant to be the best, most posh, yeah. perfect of how I hold my shoulders and mm-hmm. everything. And so it's funny because, yeah, your pictures were probably just like your honest face in every percussion. And people aren't used to seeing that because they're used to seeing why isn't your face always in this position <laughs> with your left side? Because that's your good side. Yeah. And um, that's that's really interesting that they, were <laughs> that they asked you that. Yeah,
0: I was surprised. I was like, I don't know what to tell <laughs> you. They're all me. I guess that one looks more like <laughs> me or something. It's just a, such a weird way to try to meet a mate.
1: Yeah, I don't know about you, but I've met people who I was deep, like I thought that they were beautiful, but not necessarily what I would normally like date or Mm -hmm. be interested in. And after meeting them and talking to them, I was like, oh my goodness, you're beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. So it can do either or, like personality can make someone so much more attractive just like it can make someone so much uglier. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, relationships are fascinating to me, yeah, especially online. And Bumble, right, that's um, only – is that only when the girls reach out to guys, right? They
0: have, yeah, you, you swipe and you match, and then they have to send the first message.
1: Okay, gotcha.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. It's really weird because everybody's everybody's trying to paint a picture of, like, even on Instagram or, or – Whatever, like everybody's trying to paint the best possible scenario of what they are. And most of like the most famous people, they it looks like their life is awesome and they love everything, but then they're just like, so depressed.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, pictures lie. Like I yeah. came, I In my early 20s, I posted so many things to be like, look at this. And in the background, like, I then I'd go back to that picture. I'm like, I cried that day. <laughs> like, <laughs> that was a really bad day, right? Or you take yeah. pictures with a partner. Um, so many pictures of my early 20s with people. And I'm just like, we fought all day. But this picture <laughs> looks so nice. And yeah. we made it look like everything was so great. And yeah. it's just like, If I used to do that, I know there are other people still doing it, and as things have grown, yeah, it's just like I don't, I don't know. So I, yeah, I deleted my social media because I couldn't handle it, and I felt pressure to. I was getting to a point where I was taking pictures to post, so I wasn't going to the garden center to get flowers for myself. I was going to the garden center that had a hobbit house that I could take pictures in to post on Instagram, and then end up leaving without flowers. And I was like, this is the matrix, like this is bad. (laughs) This is not okay, I'm not proud of myself, I feel super slimy. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like why am I trying to be something that I'm not, and why am I doing things only for the satisfaction of pleasing others? and not doing it because I just love gardening and because I love to plant flowers. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really toxic circle and it's unfortunate because we don't know the lens, right? We see these photos of other people and we're like, it must be this, they must be so happy. And that can cause people with jealousy or, or whatever it may be, but we don't actually know if that's the right lens. Yeah, We don't know what's truthful. We don't know what's Photoshopped because there's so many crazy, th- I watch a, YouTube's YouTube's like the one social media that I watch, and um, that's that's enough for me. I can fill enough time with YouTube, <laughs> and uh, I've watched a few videos on before and after. So people will t- take photoshops, right? And they'll photoshop their body, but then their friend will post the same photo, mm-hmm. and so you can find the original and find that like the wall is warped yep. <laughs> and like their knee is way <laughs> out far,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it just. One, it's insane, but also just makes me really sad. Like, why can't we post pictures of like our roly-poly bellies and the mm-hmm. way our bodies just sit because we're human mm-hmm. and none of us look like that. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. It's this constant <clears throat> strive for perfection, but it's all the little, it's all the little things that make us different that make us interesting,
1: right? Like imperfection is beautiful, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Weird world. I don't know where it, where it goes. Um,
1: you think that the metaverse is going to take over? Yeah. Okay, so I haven't done a lot of research on this because I just haven't. Um, it's a it's from what I remember. Let's see. I had Facebook. I deleted it three years ago. So from what I remember, Facebook three years ago was. It's obviously evolved a little bit but we're turning that into a virtual reality realm only, correct, it'll only be virtual reality? I
0: think for as, as evil as that dude is and um, driven by like profit and stuff, I think he's very smart and mm-hmm. I think he understands what's coming and he owns Facebook so he can, yeah. he can push that to happen. I think that's where it's gonna go. And then I don't know exactly what it'll look like, It'll probably be like the same – you'll still be able to to see your grandma's garden and your friends that were partying last weekend, but you'll be in the world.
1: Yeah, I'm so interested in what this looks like. So, yeah, because that's – so if your grandma's taking a picture of her garden, but you're in the metaverse world, like a 3D – structure then she's got a house and she will like her will her picture like upload Uh, to the garden that she has in her metaverse
0: i don't know i'm so
1: curious about like how i agree with you i think he's evil but he's also a genius Mm -hmm. and i'm i'm very intrigued to see how this uh comes to fruition and what exactly it means for like our future in virtual reality Mm -hmm. and wanting more and more for people to just disassociate from the world because it's all really scary and really shitty and no one trusts the government like in any country. And so we're just going to go on to metaverse Mm -hmm. and
0: be whoever we want to be. Be whoever, yeah. You know, you could eat as much as you want. Uh, You could drive a Porsche or Lamborghini or whatever, like you do anything. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think of it that way, but I think you're right. Everybody, maybe everybody will just have like a house I don't know. on a street. I don't know. I'm so interested. I mean, it, it's really cool for a lot of reasons, mm-hmm. but you're right. People will not exist in the world anymore. Mm-hmm. You'd just be like chilling in your lazy boy with your goggles on. Yeah. I mean, you just have to like set a timer to go eat real food mm-hmm. a couple times a day. And then I don't know, they'll probably have jobs in there. I'm sure, there, there's going to be some way to generate to ad revenue. Oh my gosh, be so
1: revenue. crazy to have like a job in virtual reality.
0: Yeah. It's going to happen. I didn't
1: even think about that. Yeah, that is going to happen. That's insane.
0: Yeah, you'll go to your fake job <laughs> in the fake universe. You're like,
1: hey, how's it going?
0: You know, you just ride your bicycle down the street. It's this is a, crazy. Problem.
1: It is a problem. <laughs> it's like, you're right. Like, I mean, there's so many, for as many good things as social media has brought, it has brought double the amount of bad things. And this isn't going to be any different, right? It's going to bring all this incredible technology and ways for people to communicate and, like, express themselves in a way that's so unique and different. But at the same time, it's just disconnecting human interaction, which... Like we as humans need, no matter what anybody says, when we don't have human interaction, look, look at what happened. Like you have kids in the car who are texting each other instead of talking to each mm-hmm. other. So they're finding new ways. They're very they're intelligent and they're still communicating, but that leads to more anxiety and more stress because they're not actually learning how to handle struggles with human interaction mm-hmm. face-to-face.
0: Yeah. I, be- I mean, that's good business for you, though.
1: Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's great business for me. I wish it wasn't. You're gonna but... be booming
0: in five years.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's oh, it's so crazy, and it's funny too, because a lot of my clients I'm getting right now, I find that my clients mimic me or they mirror me. Mm-hmm. So I bring in people that teach me something about myself, right? Um, and I've heard this from a lot of different people in a practitioner practice that clients will find them that helps them recognize something in themselves that they need to work on. Uh, Hmm. Whether it be creating a boundary, whether it be a mirrored trauma that we need to recognize, ooh, I'm too close to this and I'm not, I can't work with you and I need to send you to someone else or this is a really good opportunity, I'm ready to do this. I can help them without being biased of my own trauma and what have you. And I'm finding right now, how much do you know about astrology? Not a ton. Okay. So um, there's something called a Saturn return, and Saturn orbits every 27 to 30 years. And so everyone has a Saturn return, um, like, right before 30, right before 60, right before 90. Mm. And Saturn is all about limits and your boundaries and your struggles and um, logical thinking. Uh, You reap what you sow is a very, like, satirian sentence. Hmm. And so when we go through our Saturn return, wherever Saturn lies in our chart is what we're going to be going through. And the purpose of it is consciousness awareness, right? We deal with things. So like mine is in my 12th house, which is subconscious, just so happens. So I'm healing things subconsciously in the past year and I will be for the next two years um, that come up. And I didn't even realize I was in my Saturn return until a couple months ago. But at the beginning of the year, and intuitively, I was just like, I'm sad. And I don't know why, but I know that something's there and it wants to come to the surface and I need to identify it. Um, and I just kept feeling it and I slowly started peeling back. And that's why I started. Um, that's one of the reasons I really started digging into other hypnotherapists to see them. And then when I started doing that, I was like, this is great. This I'm going to do this now, just not only for myself and uh put the sessions around what I need to, but I'm going to follow people that I like and see how that can also benefit my work, right? And Mm -hmm. put both into play. And I find that right now I'm seeing so many clients that come in um, and on their discovery call, they're like, yep, I'm 27 or I'm 28 or I'm 29. Hmm. And so they're all within this age and all of them say the same thing. I'm so tired of being anxious. I want to change. I want to – I don't know what I need to do, but I want to do something different. Or people who are like extremely self-aware and they're like, I know why I'm sad. I can identify when I get triggered. I can do all of these things, but I can't stop it. I don't exactly – I see all of all of this, but I don't know where it started and I need to reframe that aspect. And so I think it's just really interesting. I am – attracting a lot of people that just so happen to, in different ways, be wanting to work on the same thing that I'm working on, which is our Saturn return and whatever that means to help us release limits and frustrations and beliefs that no longer serve us.
0: Hmm. That's really cool. You get to work on yourself while Mm -hmm. you're working with other people.
1: Yeah, Yeah. it's great. Sometimes it's really hard. Um, Other times it's really great. And sometimes I know when I'm I need to refer you out. (laughs)
0: You you have to do that often where you're like, I'm sorry, I just can't.
1: Um, Not often, but I refer people out for two reasons. I do refer out people if they come to me for clinical work, smoking, um, things like that, uh, phobias and fears. And if I have someone who's coming to me and um, I just feel like I'm too close to it, Um, I had someone come in for not for drug abuse but they had been having a lot of drug abuse and I just said I'm, I'm sorry um, I have great referrals for you mm-hmm. um, but I need to refer you out because I grew up in a home with drug abuse mm-hmm. and all a ton of family with drug and alcohol abuse mm-hmm. um, and I don't feel like this is something that I can help you with one because I'm too close to it and two, because I've never had an addiction. And so therefore I don't know how to help someone with an addiction because I don't have that mindset. You've I You've never
0: had an addiction?
1: I've had an addiction, I, okay, I had one, but I quit really quickly. Um, I, an ex-partner of mine had Xanax and Adderall prescription. Mm-hmm. And so Xanax was great because I was having panic attacks every day. Yeah, And so I was more. like, this is awesome. And then one day I just realized, I don't like this because I'm turning off this anxiety, but where's it going? Mm-hmm. And I just kind of consciously recognize like, this isn't actually, this is a Band-Aid and I don't want a Band-Aid anymore. I want to actually work on it. So that went away really quickly. And then um, I was addicted to Adderall because I had binge eating when I was younger um, and I was very overweight and it took me a really long time to get to, uh, a baseline foundation that was healthy um, for my body and my shape, and I got into my early twenties and started just partying <laughs> a lot, and then I lost a lot of weight, and I was like, "I look fucking great.
2: <laughs> this is
1: not eating looks good on me." And then, um, and then I had a partner who had Adderall, so then I could just, you know, I worked, I was working at a bar and a coffee stand, and I was going to school full time, so I was like this is the best thing ever until finally I had customers who were telling me like are you okay are you mm-hmm. we're concerned about you and then again th- that next light bulb turned on and I was like okay I need to find a happy medium because binge eating isn't good for me but not eating isn't good and so finding that middle balance of like what does healthy look like to me um, but other both of those things I was able to just quit on my own That's really cool and I didn't want to. Um, and yeah, so other, and and in my mind, like, I didn't have a strong addiction. I wasn't willing to do anything to get those drugs. You know, I wanted them. I knew that it wasn't a necessity. And so when I have someone come to me for that kind of work, it's like, I don't know where their head's at and they deserve someone to help them who knows and has been in their shoes Mm -hmm. that can actually facilitate what they need. And that is so out of my wheelhouse. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. It's really cool, though, that you could diagnose that and make a decision to change it, because that's, that's the most difficult part for most people. Mm-hmm. They know something's wrong, but they don't have the willpower to change it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's really important.
1: Yeah. It comes from, I think, just um, for me anyways, it was just hitting those those breaking points, right, that we talked about, like... If you suffer, you learn from it. Mm-hmm. And so through that suffering, you know, I started I finally hit a point where I realized like a hundred and you know, twenty-five pounds doesn't look good on me if I'm not working out. If yeah. I'm just not eating on my frame, I look sick. Yeah. And so how can I if I want to be this thin? I need to do something that's healthy for my body. I need to build strength and endurance. I need to feed my body things it wants. And I was like, I don't wanna do that. So (laughs) I'm just going to stop taking Adderall and I'm gonna have the body I have and recognize my eating habits. Mm -hmm. I'm going to not binge eat and I'm going to practice noticing when I start to binge eat and what happened that day to make me want to overeat until I'm sick. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna slowly build awareness and I don't go to the gym and I don't I I stretch. <laughs> I don't that's good for you. And, yeah. But I, I recognized in myself, like I, you know, there's so many people who say, Oh, I would love to have that body, but we don't want to do the work to do it. And when I recognize that I give myself that grace that I don't want to spend an hour in the gym every day, mm-hmm. I need to accept the body I have mm-hmm. and take care of it the best way I can. And so it was a practice, but I'm I've seen enough long-term addiction in my family. I'm pretty good at getting to a point of like, ooh, I don't want to go past this. I I usually hit a wall and I'm like, okay, this is my limit and I need to change something or withdraw to some degree.
0: I've never met a woman who didn't have an issue with food.
1: Mm. Really?
0: Not that men don't, Mm -hmm. but it's so much more prevalent. I don't know if that's from the last 10 20 34 years or if it's always been a thing but food's tough cuz you have to eat. Mhm. And it's so easy to eat now cuz we can have anything we want. You don't have to like chase a deer. <laughs> yeah. Um it's yeah, I mean I know a number of number of people who have had significant issues with it and that's it's one of the toughest ones because you, if you're hooked on heroin, you can find a way to quit heroin. Mm-hmm. You don't need heroin, but you need food.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough one. And food is so, I mean, it depends on our conditioning. But, you know, if, you're, if your parents were like, you're sad, let's go get ice cream. Yeah, And that was always the consistent reward for sadness as adults were like, oh my gosh, I'm sad. Like I'm going to comfort eat versus someone who is treating themselves because like I've had a really rough week. I deserve to eat cake or whatever it is Mm -hmm. that they want to eat, you know. But when we're taking those things as a constant coping mechanism rather than like taking a deep breath, it's so different. And then we also have everyone has different bodies. I have friends who... Um, could eat three times the amount of pasta and bread as me in a week and they will not gain weight mm-hmm. and I will bloat like a balloon. you know and so there's also that expectation of like, well she can eat that. So why can't I? but mm-hmm. we have very different metabolisms, yeah. different body frames, mm-hmm. completely different um, and structures and so but we're we're kind of, I think one of the saddest thing about women is we're taught to be pit against each other. And it's so easy to judge another woman than it is to praise another woman Mm -hmm. and feel threatened by another woman than to feel valued. And that's something that um, I think is kind of ingrained in the culture that, you know, it was the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s that got brought down by by conservative women. It wasn't men. (laughs) And so it's like... You know, which stems from patriarchy and like the system as a whole, but it, it always comes back down to like women need to be the change to help other women, and so much, so many of us are are just not there yet,
0: unfortunately. Well, you guys are really good at psychological damage. <laughs> yeah. Guys will just punch you in the face, but yeah. there's this great Louis C.K. bit where he's like, "A woman will shit in your heart." It's so true. And I love women, and I think you guys are great, but you're so good at tearing people apart Mm -hmm. with your words. And when you do that to each other, oh, and then you do it with photos on Instagram, and it's a rough world out there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Women are... Women, women can be very, very mean. Speaking as someone who used to, in my early 20s, like I was a pathological liar. I would lie about, I, I mean, the stupidest things. Like, did you drink all your water? And I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't drink any of it. And it was a coping mechanism for people pleasing. Mm-hmm. Because I thought that if I lied, that you would be happy with the answer. And therefore, I wouldn't be in trouble. Mm-hmm. But if... I told the truth, I would be criticized, not recognized, not fully comprehending that when you lie and people find out, you are more in trouble than if you had told the truth. Mm-hmm. That hadn't quite clicked for me. And so I grew up lying to all the time and um, and just being very unself-aware and malicious. And mm-hmm. it was never purposeful. I never did anything to be like, I want to hurt this person, so I'm going to do this. It was just things just came out of my mouth and I look back and I think oh my god I hope that person's okay like I I think I might have traumatized that person and I really hope they made it out all right like Mm -hmm. I I hope that I wasn't someone that broke them um and that they are better people for being able to handle someone like me because I was just such a mess um And now I'm on the complete opposite end, like, if you wanted me to call Comcast to try and get a cheaper bill and lie about something, (laughs) I'd be like, I won't do it. (laughs)
2: Like,
1: I'm a very all-or-nothing person. It's hard for me to find middle ground. But right now I'm like, I do not. I do not lie whatsoever. Um, And, yeah, I think looking at that aspect of myself and who I used to be, I learned that from other women. Mm -hmm. I learned not the lying aspect, that was a coping mechanism, but who I was and how mean I was. I learned from other women in my life mm-hmm. who I thought were good people, and not recognizing until afterwards like when some when a woman was really nice to me and genuine, wasn't trying to take anything for for uh, granted or or trying to steal my partner or whatever it may be, I was like... Wow, you're really nice. (laughs) I think, like, I don't deserve to be friends with someone like that. And it took a really long time for me to recognize the difference between women who are really self-destructive and can just say things. And like you said, it's just shits in your heart. Like, it's not good (laughs) compared to, you know, women who recognize um, how to properly communicate certain things.
0: It's hard. I, I don't think I have it figured out, but I think I'm way better at being a human than I was 10 years ago or 20 mm-hmm. years ago. You, you're a product of your environment, you're a product of the people you hang out with and who your parents are and who you hang out with, um, who you go to school with, mm-hmm. where you work. All those are factors in creating you and you don't you don't figure it out right away. And most people don't figure it out ever. But that's the the misconception is that when you're a kid, you're like, oh, my parents have it figured out. Oh, my grandparents know what they're doing.
1: Right. Like this pedestal of like, they're not human. They're your parents. Uh-huh. And then one day, which it clicked for me this year or last two years, it clicked. And I was like, my parents are human. Like I see my dad now when he's in his inner child. And I don't see him as my dad. I see him as like this little kid who's playing <laughs> guitar and is like... 5 years old and like wants a validation and attention and I'm like it's so different but yeah. as kids yeah we're like our parents have everything figured out they know everything and it's it's a weird it's a weird concept that we make up in our minds about what parents are until one day we realize they're human too mm-hmm. they're just like us and that's a weird, re- that's a weird thing to, it's to find. Weird. Yeah. Yeah,
0: well, yeah I, I don't know about you, but I put a lot of thought into age as a number. Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, I thought I had to achieve a certain amount by a certain age because other people had achieved a certain amount by a certain age. And then you just think like, Oh, 40s, ancient fifties, like you're almost dead. And yeah. like, I'm almost 40 now. Mm-hmm. And I don't, like, I feel like I'm smarter, <laughs> always, but I'm also an idiot. And But mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the beauty of it, is that I get to keep learning something new every day. I get to hang out with you and hear what you have to say, and, like, it slowly changes my opinion on some things. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most important part, is just that you keep trying to figure stuff out. Because I don't – I'll be 90 years old, and I'll be like, man, I wish I would have learned more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um I used to think I was gonna be married with kids by the age of 24 and Mm -hmm. a college degree. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm I'm 28 and uh, I got married at 26. um, And we do not want kids for the next at least six years Mm -hmm. because we wanna actually spend time with each other. Mm -hmm. We wanna build a foundation for our children that young parents aren't always able to do right away or they have it it happens slower um we we want to be selfish I want to sleep in I want sleep (laughs) how dare you because I know once we have kids we are going to be fully like you know there I I think all parents hit levels of like laziness in the sense of you're just tired you're raising kids you need a break for yourself but I also think that there's a big difference between parents who are completely um, not involved and will just put their kids in front of a tv for 10 hours versus mm-hmm. a parent who like actively is trying to engage their children in one way or another and I just feel like I'm going to i know my personality and because i am all or nothing i'm going to go all in i'm going to have no sleep i'm going to ha- have no hobbies for the first like 7 years and give up everything <laughs> and i'm going to f- at some point need to find balance again and i'm just not ready to make that sacrifice yet and i think so many people you know i also have friends who are like oh my god i'm i'm 27 or i'm 30 or i'm this and i'm like I'm fucking 28 and I'm excited. I have more money than I've ever had. (laughs) I'm way happier than I've ever been. I've started my own business, so I work for myself. Like, it can only go up from here. Like, Mm -hmm. this is great. Mm -hmm. 21 sucked when I look back at it. Like, that was not fun. But, you know, when you're young, you're like... 21 is going to be so awesome. And it hits you in the face and you're, yeah. it's really difficult. Mm-hmm. And then you get to drink to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wash it away. Yeah,
0: exactly. Forget all your troubles.
1: Yeah. That's
0: a very adult decision. Yeah. I think it's a good one.
1: I'm grateful. I'm, I'm grateful. We didn't, I didn't have kids earlier. Um, and, you know, it's just funny. We put these things on age, like we're supposed to do this by this age and, and. I've just come to feel like, you know, my dad's uh, my dad's sixty. He retired at fifty five, working for the state, and um, worked for the government in child protective services. Mm-hmm. And his whole life has been on the like, on the hamster wheel, right? Never really doing anything for himself. Trying to raise his kids. Trying to be a good dad. Trying to be a good husband. Trying to be a good employee. And he retires. And um, he goes through a little bit of a midlife crisis and breaks down and he comes back out writing in a year, writing over uh, 60 songs, playing guitar, starting a band, moving to upstate New York from Washington and just like wearing unicorn shirts (laughs) and writing songs about cosmic cowboys and like smoking... Cosma, what let me think of the word, uh, cosmogenonic weed. It's like cosmic and ga- ganja, ganja <laughs> weed, cosmogonja weed. Nice, and it's just like this man that has never lived for himself at the age of 50. Uh, sorry, uh, 58. At this point, at 58, when he started this process, like. That just shows you age is nothing, right? When someone that we think of what 55 and 60-year-olds are doing and he's like completely breaking those barriers. Mm -hmm. And it really opened up my eyes and seeing him in his inner child all the time really opened me up to recognize that like age is just a number. And the more that we see it as a construct to hold and bind ourselves to... The less we're living for ourselves because we're building out of what society thinks is mm-hmm. appropriate, yep. right? Like seeing an eighty-year-old woman in a tutu—totally fine. She's crazy. She's having a good time. She's lived her life. Five-year-old—she's adorable and cute and wonderful. You see a thirty-year-old in a tutu, and you're like, "Did you did you put on your kid's clothes today? What the, what the fuck is wrong with you?" <laughs> and so we have these constructs of like what's well, acceptable, but it's all false. And I feel like those of us that are naturally just inquisitive and young at heart will always be that way. I don't I don't think there's much that can deter that to a point where, you know, we turn 80 and we're like, well, I'm just going to eat pudding and put my teeth in cups for the rest of my life <laughs> yeah. and like yeah. hope that my feet don't get cold at night, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I agree. I think there's... There are way too many people that um, get sidetracked with uh, what people think, and you shouldn't worry about it. You don't know when you're going out. You don't know who you're gonna get to see or who you're Mm -hmm. gonna get to meet, where you're gonna get to go. You just gotta do it while you can. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I don't know, fear is a strong deterrent Especially with stuff like this going on right now. I know I know people that are just so terrified. Mm-hmm. They don't go anywhere. Yeah. I'm like, you are missing out on
1: life. I know. It's hard. And, you know, that fear is irrational, right? I, I My brother had said, like, the statistics that you're more likely to get into a car crash than you are to get, like, five times more likely to get into a car crash than you are to get COVID and die. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, it's people have stopped living their lives completely and it just, it's devastating. It's not okay, you know. Um, I I believe everyone should be doing what they need to feel safe, but there's a difference between rational safety and like, you know, okay, so you don't want to be around people, but I can go to a local park that I know is almost always deserted, or I can start doing things for myself and find things that add value to my life. Um, but that's turned more into like their home all the time. There's nothing pushing them to try and live by those values. So more and more people are falling, um, to the faults of social media and television. And, you know, um, that's a hard one in our house is watching movies. Oh, I I watch a ton of movies. Yeah. We have to, I have to consciously think like. Okay, in the past week, how much time, what what did I do? If I woke up, did I do a morning routine or did I go straight to work? Did I work for 12 hours and then watch Dragon Ball and then go to sleep? If I did that seven days in a row, <laughs> am I adding value to my life yeah. <laughs> outside of my yeah. work? And so I do try to consciously, pra- and I use that word practice because I feel like we say trying and that kind of says... I'm not really trying, like trying as I might do it, right? But practice is knowing that it takes time. We know that we're going to mess up. We know that we can give ourselves forgiveness. I know there's going to be a week where I watch too much television and there's going to be weeks where I'm much more in tune with my activities and things that I love to do. But it's hard when people are in this pandemic and fear is running them because they're Kind, they're in fight or flight. When they're to the point where they're not living their lives, they're no longer living in value. They're only living in trying to protect themselves in whatever way that means. And so that means coping mechanisms are going to be coming up, healthy or unhealthy. Um, relationship struggles, if you have a partner or someone that you live with who's like, I really want to go do things. And they're like, it's scary out there. Like then you have conflict. For sure. And yeah, it's um personally, I believe we can't stop living our lives. We can all do what we think is safe um, depending on that objective word and what that means to each individual, but at the same time, you know, bu- getting in a bunker isn't uh,
0: life is full of risk. You yeah. can't remove it all. If you don't want to bungee jump, don't bungee jump. Mm-hmm. You don't want to go skydiving, don't go skydiving, but you you risk. Everything, every day, going to the grocery store to, to, you get in the car and you drive. You, you could slip and fall inside the grocery store and hit your head like there, you're gonna die somehow. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And, uh, yeah, it just bums me out. Like it was a credible threat for a while. And now we understand Mm -hmm. it's not quite what we thought it was. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's just some people that are driven by that fear. And, um, you only get so much time. You can't, can't waste it all.
1: Yeah. And I mean, this is my, my faith belief. So this is all objective to my personal reality. But like, I truly believe that my soul is meant to do certain things. And if it's meant to die young, it's going to die young. Getting COVID or not getting COVID um, and dying from that, if I didn't die from that at a young age, I believe I would have died from something else. Like, I don't believe you can cheat death.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so whatever happens is going to happen. And I'm willing to take whatever risks I believe are not risky for me, <laughs> in my opinion, mm-hmm. and follow my safety guidelines according to what those are and also respect other people's boundaries and what they need, you know, Um knowing that my beliefs may not fall within the majority and therefore proactively making sure that I don't put other people in uncomfortable situations just because I have my own beliefs. And yeah. I think there's a, yeah, it's, it's all very interesting. The human psyche in this period has been extremely interesting in watching people and how they react. Um, but I don't think that locking ourselves inside is the way to go, especially when We live in the Northwest where uh, seasonal depression disorder is, like, super high. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. So locking ourselves inside for the whole year is year-round. Yeah, (laughs) summer's only good
0: for three months. Yeah. You can't miss that.
1: We need need nature. We need to, like, talk to a tree, hug a tree, (laughs) like, sit on the ground and, like, feel – close your eyes and feel the grass between your fingers and, like, Mm -hmm. how they sit on each movement and, like, just – the little things that we can do to connect to nature, whether it be once a year, or five times a month, I think that um, that would go a long ways for people. But there's a, there's that fear.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It just sits there,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the news doesn't help.
0: No, not at all.
1: The news is, uh, do you? Uh, so John Krasinski, mm-hmm. he had a thing called, um really good news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we watched that for the first what, like eight weeks of the pandemic. Yeah,
0: and then he sold it. Yeah, and they destroyed it
1: yeah yeah so i don't want to talk about that part because <laughs> that part <laughs> time we were really good The first time yeah. we're really great and it was like i like watching this it's nice to see what's going right in the world mm-hmm. it's nice to see the good things because the news is only spewing us the bad the worse and what they can twist yeah um to make look even more disastrous um and so If we had more things, but our system's not built on distributing things that help people um, and make them happier. It's built on distributing control and, um, yeah.
0: We just got to spin it make it more positive.
1: Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) do our best.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's a good spot to uh, shut it down. So thank you very much.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.